Hey y'all, Eves here. Today's episode contains not just one, but two nuggets of history. These are coming from the TDIHC vault, so you'll also hear two hosts. Consider it a double feature. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson and it's November 17th. H.H. Holmes was arrested on this day in 1894. You probably have heard of H.H. Holmes. He was the one with the murder castle. Sometimes he's described as being the first serial killer in the United States, but really the same could be said of other killers as well. He was born Herman W. Mudgett in New Hampshire on May 16th of 1861. His parents were very strict and in many ways abusive, and his only childhood friend, a boy named Tom, died in a fall while they were playing in an abandoned house. At the time, this was determined to be an accident. But there are people who think this might have been his first victim. He got married in 1878, although he eventually left his wife but stayed legally married, and he started studying medicine at the University of Vermont when he was 19. He was not a great student in medical school, but he did start up some crime while he was there. He started using the school's cadavers to commit insurance fraud. He would take out insurance policies on them as though they were his family members and then stage fake accidents with their bodies to collect on it. It's not totally clear whether he graduated from medical school or not, but a child died after getting medicine from the drugstore where he worked. So he left and went to Chicago, and that is where he started going by the name H.H. Holmes. He took over a drugstore in Chicago that was owned by a Mrs. Holton. He bought it from her after her husband died, except he got the money to buy the drugstore by mortgaging what was in the drugstore before he actually owned it. He also stopped making payments on his purchase of the store, and Mrs. Holton sued him before mysteriously disappearing. He told other people that she moved, but couldn't give a forwarding address. He got married again in 1887, even though he was still married from before, and his new wife eventually left him to give birth to their daughter, staying with her parents after the baby was born. Then in 1888, Herman Mudgett, now known as H.H. Holmes, bought some land and started building his murder castle. He was making it to be a very good place to murder people. There were secret chutes that went into the basement, an airtight vault, windowless rooms with gas jets in them, with the controls to the gas jets being in his office. There were also hidden passages. And to cover up what he was doing, because this would probably seem really suspicious if you were the lead contractor on this project, He worked with a whole rotating series of carpenters and contractors, and he fired them one after the other so that no one person had a total sense of what this whole structure was going to be like. He finished the murder castle in May of 1890, and at that point, people were starting to get excited for the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. So, in anticipation of that, he re-outfitted his murder castle to be a hotel while continuing to also run the drugstore. The hotel opened long before the World's Fair arrived, and many of his employees, a lot of them young women, started mysteriously disappearing. 
There was also a series of women that he courted and in some cases became engaged to who also disappeared. So did a woman named Julia Connor, who was the estranged wife of a man that Holmes agreed to sell the drugstore to, and when she disappeared, she was pregnant. Then during the actual World's Fair, he started selectively allowing women to stay in the hotel. When a man came to rent a room, he would say they were all booked up, but when a woman came, there was a room available for her. By this point, though, he had started to get the attention of the authorities. Some of this was because creditors had brought up the fact that he had not paid them their money back. Also, the families of these missing women had said, hey, they were working for this guy named H.H. Holmes. He set fire to the building, hoping to collect insurance, but failed. He fled Chicago. He spent some time in jail for fraud. And while he was in jail, he confessed some of his fraud to another prisoner, After his release, that prisoner alerted Fidelity Mutual Life Insurance Company about Holmes' crimes because Holmes was supposed to pay him $500 and did not do it. So when Holmes was finally arrested on November 17th of 1894, it was for insurance fraud, not murder. He was finally connected to some of these murders, though, after he was arrested. He was put on trial. He was hanged on May 7th of 1896. There are, though, folks who insisted that he faked his own death and that someone else was buried in his grave. DNA tests have since concluded, though, that those remains really did belong to him. We do not know his total death count, in part because the murder castle was destroyed in a mysterious fire on August 19th, 1885. You can learn more about all this on the January 23rd and 25th, 2012 episodes of Stuff You Missed in History Class. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on the show. And you can subscribe to This Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for a landmark in the world of film. Hello, hello again. I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, where we examine the past from the present. The day was November 17, 1903. Mary Alice Nelson, also known as Molly Spotted Elk, was born on the Penobscot Indian Island Reservation in Maine. Molly was a dancer, actress, and writer. The Penobscot Reservation was near Old Town, Maine. The Penobscot are peoples indigenous to the northeastern United States and Maritime Canada. They are a federally recognized tribe in Maine and are part of the Wabanaki Confederacy. Traditionally, their subsistence was rooted in hunting, fishing, and collecting wild plants. They moved seasonally to have access to food. But as with other indigenous peoples in North America, life changed for the Penobscot when Europeans arrived on the continent. Disease reduced their population and Europeans dispossessed them of their land. By the time Molly was born, tourism and entertainment were a big part of the Penobscot economy. Molly Dellis was the name that her parents called her. Her mother was a basket maker and practiced traditional medicine, and her father was a political leader. He was also the first Penobscot to attend Dartmouth College, and both of her grandfathers had been tribal leaders. Molly had seven younger siblings, whom she helped raise. She and her siblings sold their mother's baskets in tourist towns, and Molly learned traditional dances to help support her family. 
Tourists often gave Penobscot children change to dance. Molly enjoyed dancing, and she took jobs cleaning houses so she could afford ballet lessons in Bangor. When she was 13 years old, she completed her last year at Old Town Junior High. And over the next few years, she worked as a governess, joined a vaudeville company, and worked as a counselor at a summer camp for girls. She was in and out of high school over the years. But after going to live with Frank Speck, a University of Pennsylvania anthropologist, she was able to go to Swarthmore Preparatory School and audit classes at the University of Pennsylvania. She contributed to Speck's study of the Penobscot, called Penobscot Man, the life of a forest tribe in Maine. It's not entirely clear whether she graduated from the university, but when she left, she joined an Old West show, touring the country and working at a ranch in Oklahoma. It was around this time when she started going by the name Molly Spotted Elk. But soon, Molly turned back to dancing to gain notoriety and success. She moved to New York, saying that once she became famous, her mother would no longer have to make baskets. There, she worked as a nude model for artists, gave dance lessons, and modeled footwear. All the while, she saved money for school, sent money back to her mom, and read a lot. She joined the Foster Girls Chorus Line and worked with an all-Native American troupe that performed on the Keith Albee vaudeville circuit. Between shows, she wrote poetry and stories. Eventually, she began doing solo performances, mixing traditional indigenous dances with contemporary ones like the Charleston and the Black Bottom. In 1928, Molly landed a big role in the silent film, The Silent Enemy, which was released in 1930. But it wasn't as big of a financial hit as she hoped it would be, and it didn't make her a huge star, even though it helped her buy her family a new house. The year after the film was released, she went to France as a part of the Ballet Corps of the International Colonial Exposition and part of a Native American jazz band called the United States Indian Band. She stayed in Paris for a while, working with anthropologists, attending lectures at the Sorbonne, and she taught ballet. There, she met Jean Archambault, whom she later married. After the Great Depression hit and the couple had trouble keeping work, a pregnant Molly moved to the United States without Jean. She had her daughter there, and she landed roles in several Hollywood films, including Last of the Mohicans and The Charge of the Light Brigade. In 1938, she and her daughter went back to Paris to reunite with John, but her family's time there was turbulent. Work was scarce, her second child died as an infant, and World War II was beginning. Molly went back to the U.S. and got a job dancing and maintaining costumes for a touring company. But her husband's health was declining, and he died in October of 1941. In the States, Molly went back and forth between Indian Island and New York, taking small jobs. She spent time in a mental institution, and she wrote stories and made dolls. By the early 1950s, she had settled in Indian Island, where she remained for the rest of her life. She died in 1977. Molly left behind her diaries, a book of traditional Penobscot stories, and a dictionary of the Penobscot language. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. To learn more about Molly, you can listen to the episode of Stuff You Missed in History class called Mary Alice Nelson, aka Molly Spotted Elk. The link is in the description. Want to impress your internet crush? Show them your history smarts by sharing something you learned on the show. Don't forget to tag us at TDIHC Podcast. 
Or you can go the old-fashioned route and send us an email at thisday@iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again tomorrow.